Welcome to MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Labs Alliances podcast. I'm Kara Miller. On today's show, companies face a thorny addition problem. How do you combine humans and computers and get something more than the sum of its parts? Often, the most important factor in business success is not just how productive are you, not how much you can increase your productivity, but how intelligent are you? Thomas Malone, the founding director of the MIT Center for Collective Intelligence, talks about the race to reshape corporations and the reason that the marriage of human and computer can be both incredibly powerful and incredibly challenging. So sometimes the hierarchy says we want you to do X and the community says, Eh, we don't really want to do X. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, that makes it really hard for the hierarchical managers to cause the changes they want to change and think should be easy. It turns out it's much harder if there are communities involved in the company that don't want to do that. In an era of AI, how do you up your game? Try computing with a human touch. That's coming up next. for a minute about Starbucks at 7.45 on a Tuesday morning. Super busy, people lining up, orders pouring in from mobile phones, baristas looking at screens, talking to each other, handing out chai lattes and cappuccinos, and you've seen this before. Most of us look at that scene and think, steamy chaos. Tom Malone, on the other hand, sees what he calls a supermind. Which By the way, I use that word to mean groups of individuals. They can be people, they can be computers, they can be combinations of both. I define the supermind as a group of individuals acting together in ways that seem intelligent. The productivity, the interaction, the connectedness on display in Starbucks on a Tuesday morning is incredible when you look at it through Malone's eyes. There's a very delicate interplay between people and computers that results in a level of output that no single person could accomplish on their own. And I think that's a concept that we don't really think about that much, but it's a very important way of thinking many, many things that are important in our world. Not just groups of humans and computers, but groups of humans all by themselves. Right, right. Uh, I would say that superminds include hierarchical corporations and democracies and markets and communities. So if you think about it that way, almost everything we humans have ever accomplished was not done by individual humans working all alone. It was done by superminds. Malone is a professor of management at the MIT Sloan School of Management. He has helped found four software companies, holds 11 patents, and is the author, among other things, of the book Superminds. He believes that as we rush into an era of AI and machine learning, it is worth taking a step back to rethink the relationship between humans and computers. Humans have been teaming up with outside entities, mostly other humans, to create superminds for as long as we've been around. We've teamed up to get food, to build bridges, to make tools, things we just could not have done as solo actors. We were smarter together. And computers have been one of the standout tools we've made. They can conjure up spreadsheets for us or provide us with digital calendars, 
but they can also serve as assistance, suggesting ways we might fix our spelling or finish a sentence. And Malone says we're moving into a moment when computers will operate as more than tools and assistants, though they will be that too. They will be peers and managers. So imagine, he says, you're driving down the street alongside a self-driving car. All of a sudden, a computer is your peer. You're a driver. It's a driver. And we may increasingly see computers break up large tasks and delegate them amongst different workers. That's already been tried. It's likely to become increasingly common. Malone consults with businesses around the world and believes we are far too concerned about being displaced by computers. But we spend too little time thinking about working with computers to create ever more powerful superminds. It's not people or computers that we have to think about. Hmm. It should be people and computers. So we shouldn't be thinking about how many jobs are computers going to take away from people so much. We should be thinking more about what people and computers can do together that could never be done before. So if we stick for, I want to talk about that, um, but just let's stick for a minute with the concern. Um, how much do you hear from business leaders or could be more from middle managers about that worry that, um, you know, this time is different? And th- there's been particular concern about AI, I think, in the sense of like, well, maybe this is a technology that will really eat into white collar work in a way that for sure we've seen factories automate and we've seen blue collar jobs but that have been lost. But maybe this is a different pool of people this time. I just wonder what you hear in terms of concern. Well, I think that's not just hearing, but I think it's true that mm. uh, the new technologies, especially generative AI most recently, will change the work that uh, many white-collar workers do, Hmm. not just blue-collar workers, though it'll change some of that too. Uh, So I think that part is true. People certainly talking a lot about it. I think a lot of people are worried about it. Uh, But I think we worry too much and perhaps in the wrong way. Okay. Many people's jobs will change and in ways that will probably make the jobs more interesting. Hmm. Some people's jobs may go away altogether, but I think most of those people will find opportunities to do more interesting jobs. Mm -hmm. That's an optimistic perspective. Certainly it won't be true for everyone, but I think it's much more true than many people worry about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I always think about all these jobs that, let's say, existed around, you know, 1900, like people worked making carriages and people worked making hats when women and men wore hats a lot more, you know, and like all these Things that like almost nobody does. I mean, it's not like somebody doesn't make hats, but not that many people do that anymore. Um, but as you know, as you say, uh, it's we don't have a fifty percent unemployment rate, so lots of things exist now that somebody in nineteen hundred would have been surprised was a job, like graphics designer or something. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, uh, I, I like to talk about what my grandfather would have thought when. He, in the 1930s, he moved to the farm where I grew up in New Mexico. Okay. okay. Uh, and if you had told him that someday his grandchildren's friends would have job titles like website designer and software developer and uh, social media influencer right. and so forth, he would have said, <laughs> what in the heck does that even mean? Right. And he would certainly not have believed that those people's jobs were going to replace jobs of people he knew, like shoemaker or plumber mm-hmm. or, for that matter, farmer, actually. Right, right. Um, 
as you probably know, in 1800, about 90-some percent of the U.S. population or employment was in agriculture. Hmm. Today, it's less than 2%. Wow. So part of why this is hard for people to think about is that it's easy to imagine the jobs that could be destroyed because they exist today. You may know right, people who right, have right. them. It's much harder to imagine the jobs that will be created because they will seem as strange to us now as the jobs that we have today would have seemed to my grandfather. I'd love to talk, if we can, about a couple of specific situations in business where you feel like the supermind approach has been applied. It can be in different sectors or whatever, but so we can like really bring it down to that concrete level. So let me start with Google search. This okay. is not a new example, but I think it's one that illustrates the kinds of things that are possible. You might think of Google search as a purely technological thing. Right, right, right. Let's right. start by observing that Google search would be of no use whatsoever if there weren't a bunch of information on the internet created by humans that the Google search technology could index and then help you search. So Google search is not a purely technical device or invention. It's an invention that only has value because of the combination between humans creating information, technology for organizing and helping to organize and search that information, and humans using that information. Right. Um, in a somewhat similar way, uh, ChatGPT, which again people think of as a technology taking stuff away from humans, mm -hmm. ChatGPT couldn't exist, wouldn't begin to have the value it does if there hadn't been millions and millions of pages of text and other material on the internet that ChatGPT could learn the patterns in. And those pages were created by humans. Right. Again, right. something that we might be tempted to think of as pure technology isn't that at all. It's a synergistic combination or the result of a synergistic combination of what people can do and what computers can do. I know you work with a lot of companies. I wonder if you think that there's a difference between the way that kind of, we might call them like digital native companies like a Netflix or an Amazon that sort of was born in a pretty recent moment and they were almost born to work on computers versus, or obviously there's much older companies when you think about finance, you think about automotive companies or oil and gas or whatever, do you feel like there's a difference in how those two types of companies think about uh, human-computer collaboration? Uh, there's certainly a lot of differences in those kinds of companies in many ways. It's kind of um, a well-known phenomenon in the history of business that companies kind of take on a character that is in some sense determined by the era in which they were founded. Hmm. For instance, I, I just heard about a study very recently about companies that were founded in the last three to five years where it said that they had much higher proportion of their workers who worked at home or even lived far away from right. whatever offices the company had, much higher than in companies founded in an earlier era. So I think that's just one of many examples of the the ways in which new companies very often take advantage of the new technologies that are then available at the time they're founded. And they're able to do that uh, 
in a way and without as much difficulty as companies founded before who've already built up their their kind of habits, their cultures, right, their right. structures found based on an earlier generation of technology. Oh, and I, I guess the key point I wanted to make is that I think that even though it's often said that we need to be and often believed that we need to be innovative in technologies, I think it's perhaps just as important or maybe even more important to be innovative in the ways we use those technologies to organize work. In other words, it's just as important to invent new kinds of organizations as it is to invent new technologies that make those organizations possible. Just as one kind of simple example of that, think about Amazon. Amazon, in a sense, invented, they weren't literally the first person or first company to do it, but they, in a sense, really did invent what we think of as modern online electronic commerce. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh huh. Yeah. That was a new way of doing things, a new way of organizing things. It couldn't have existed without the internet and the databases and so forth. Uh, but those technologies alone wouldn't have had nearly the value they do now if there hadn't been inventions like the kind of online electronic commerce that Amazon pioneered. And now we have companies in more and more industries that, you know, are almost more a tech company than they are a company in that industry. Uh-huh. I mean, some people would say, for instance, that Tesla is not just an automobile company. It's right. really more of a technology company. Well, I think it's a, it's a really important point because in some ways— I wonder if you worry about gaps opening up because, as you, you mean, you gave the example of Amazon. In some ways, it is a tech company. A lot of people think of it as a tech company, but it's a retail company. Like, who are its competitors? I mean, Walmart, like, you know, in some ways. Um, and, you know, Netflix and Tesla, as you say, these are not exa- in some ways they're tech companies, but in some ways they're not tech companies at all. And so I wonder if you feel like, you worry that because some companies are doing better with that collaboration, gaps are opening up. Oh, yes. I think those are those are all great examples of this phenomenon. Um, Netflix, Amazon, uh, Facebook, in a sense, is, it's either a publishing company or an entertainment company or something. That's true. Exactly That's true. What. Uh, but all of these companies are ones that, in some sense— revolutionized their industries by using technology and organizing themselves in ways that were appropriate for doing that. Uh, They revolutionized their industries by inventing a new way of organizing work that took advantage of computers in ways that would never have been possible before. So, you know, when businesses come to you, when you consult or when you talk to folks, um, and they and they worry about let's say they're they are an older company or they ha- you know they're not one of these few companies that was maybe founded recently kind of at, at this sort of uh, tech human interface. What are ways in which they could use your observations on the idea of the supermind and use it to drive business decisions? Well, especially in a rapidly changing economy where innovations may matter as much as things like economies of scale and so forth used to matter in the past, often 
the most important factor in business success is not just how productive are you, not how much you can increase your productivity, but how intelligent are you? Hmm. How intelligent is your company? How capable is it of sensing and responding to what's going on in the environment in intelligent and rapid ways? So I think that's useful way of thinking about things, no matter what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And it's likely to become more and more useful in more and more industries. So in terms of how companies can use this perspective of superminds specifically to think about how to use technology, I actually have a number of concepts in the Superminds book about that. And since the book was published, we've developed a methodology we call Supermind Design Methodology, hmm. which okay. kind of codifies some of those concepts in a way that we think will make it easy for people to ask themselves provocative questions to help think about that. Um, for instance, uh, the, the Supermind Design Methodology is organized around a set of moves or conceptual moves, which are essentially questions you can ask yourself. Uh, some of them are fairly simple, like what are the parts of this? We call that zoom in. What is this a part of? We call that zoom out. What are analogies to this? We call that analogize. But some of them are more specifically focused on how to organize a supermind. One is called groupify, which suggests you take whatever your problem is and think about, well, how could this be done by a hierarchy? Probably we've already thought about that. So how could this problem be solved by a market? Or how could this problem be solved by a democracy? Mm -hmm. Or how could it be solved by a community? Mm -hmm. And just thinking about those things often triggers ideas people might never have had before that might be innovative ways of organizing their organizations and that might be a very good idea about something to do. So one way then is to use this methodology, uh, but we've also encoded this methodology in a new system we call Supermind Ideator. It's based on the GPT technology, so it's based on generative AI, Okay. but on top of that underlying software, we've added some prompting and some fine-tuning and some user interfaces. So you can just type in your problem, whatever it is, and the system will then automatically generate for you a whole bunch of ideas about things you can think of or things you could do to solve that problem. So in a sense, it automates some of the creative thinking Hmm. that people could do using just the methodology alone. But our expectation is not that you're going to type in the problem and this system is going to give you the answer. It's that you're going to type in the problem and this system is going to inspire you to think about a lot of things you might not have thought about. And you might come up with even better ideas than it came up with or pick right. a few good ones and realize that many of the ideas the system came up with are stupid, but you're still... <laughs> Way better off than if you hadn't had anything to trigger your innovative thinking like that. Right, right, right. Even if 18 of the 20 ideas are bad, that might leave you with two good ones, and that's not so bad. Exactly, exactly. You know, it also occurs to me that even putting computers aside, obviously we've talked a lot about computers, but 
when you talk about like, oh, is this a problem, a business problem that uh, a higher, like how would a hierarchy solve it? Well, it's probably been done that way because that's how businesses are organized. Generally, there's a boss and there's whatever people under that person. Um, You know, how would a democracy like more people be more equal, solve it or whatever? Um, It also suggests that cultures within organizations, again, putting computers aside, but just how the people deal with each other is extremely important because if like the boss has all the answers, that may limit the number of answers you're going to get, right? Exactly. Exactly. So I think you're absolutely right that different styles, different types of superminds, like the ones we're listing, uh, have different cultures and different kind of assumptions about humans and what their roles are. I think it's also interesting to observe, by the way, that even which of those methods you can use feasibly is affected by the technologies you have. For instance, one of the reasons that hierarchies are so common today is that they do a pretty good job of economizing on the amount of communication you need. Basically, people send problems up the hierarchy and then uh-huh. they get directions down the hierarchy and you just need a few links for that to happen. Right. But for a democracy to work, everybody in some sense has to be informed about what the problems are, what the questions are, and everybody has to express an opinion through their vote and somebody has to count all that. And so there's a lot more communicating and counting needed to make a democracy work effectively than to make a hierarchy work effectively. Mm-hmm. And potentially disagreeing may may factor into that too, right? There's a lot more disagreeing when there's more equality than when one person decides. Exactly. But the advantage of using a, something like a democracy is that you get a lot more knowledge brought to bear on the problem, mm-hmm. a lot more perspectives brought to bear on the problem. And you do have a way of making a final decision just by counting the votes. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can do that without computers, but it's a very time-consuming expensive process, which is why we only vote uh, every few years for most things uh, in democratic governments. Uh, But computers make it completely feasible, cheap and easy, if we want to, to do all that whole process much faster, much more easily, and possibly in ways that lead to much better decisions. So, of course, that doesn't mean we should make all decisions by democracies. There are lots of other factors to consider. But I think one of the key points is that these new technologies, in addition to being able to do some of the tasks that used to be doable only by humans, these new technologies can also enable new ways of organizing work because of things like reducing communication costs. Now, I know you're very excited about the possibilities for AI, but I wonder if you also feel like companies are too eager to think like AI is going to change everything, Um, like we can just throw a lot of compute power at a problem and it'll be solved. Yeah. I'm optimistic about what can happen, that's for sure. Uh, But I think right now, as with uh, 1999 and the internet, we are in danger of and probably Mm -hmm in a hype cycle that may have uh, taken something that is, in fact, very good with very high, very high promise uh, and exaggerated its benefits and especially the speed with which they'll happen. Mm -hmm. So we're probably setting ourselves up for a little bit of disillusionment somewhere along the way. 
Uh, but also, sure enough, basically almost everything we thought about uh, as happening next year in 1999 did eventually happen. It just took another 10 or in some cases 20 right, years right. before it was really a, a big deal. Right. And I think that's probably similar to what's happening with generative AI right now. Uh, yes, some amazing things are now possible. And it's easy to see those, and it's easy to extrapolate all the other things that could be done. But I think we often underestimate the the time it takes to adjust human organizations to do things in a new way, uh, the time it takes for people to learn new skills, the time mm-hmm. it takes for people to just be willing to try things. Um, not everybody wants to be a first mover. Right, right. So, um, so I think there's real value there. I think the companies and other organizations that don't take advantage of this are in danger of being left behind. But I think it's also likely that we'll have some over-optimism about this for a little while longer and then some disillusionment. Do you think it's going to be hard for leaders to get their companies to buy into a really new way of thinking about and using technology? Like, is that transition both in terms of people adjusting to a new approach, but also maybe learning as part of that, things that they don't know right now? Is that going to also slow things down? Is that going to be tough for, a tougher sell than, than maybe leaders think? Well, if you're trying to make a change in a company that requires people to do things in a new way, yeah, especially if it requires them to learn new stuff that's not easy to learn or uh, takes them out of their comfort zone, et cetera, that's usually not easy in any company for any reason. One of the well-known sort of, I'd, I guess you could say, morals or something in, in the organization theory is how hard organizational change is, mm-hmm. uh, especially, and I think this is probably telling, especially when you're at the top of the organization and trying to get the people down below you to change. That's harder than you might think, mm-hmm. in part because hierarchies aren't perfect order followers. People have their own incentives, their own ideas about what should be done. In fact, to go back to the supermind metaphor, every real company has not only a hierarchy, uh, but it has a kind of labor market, and uh, every company has a set of communities that are part of it. And sometimes the the superminds fight with each other. So sometimes the hierarchy says, we want you to do X, and the community says, eh, we don't really want to do X. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, that makes it really hard for the hierarchical managers to cause the changes they want to change and think should be easy, it turns out it's much harder if there are communities involved in the company that don't want to do that. So I think those things are hard no matter what, whether it's because of technology or, you know, different working hours or almost anything. We've been talking mostly about sort of an idea that you have that you've brought to companies, to leaders that they've read about. I wonder what you've learned maybe just in the last year or two as people have really, as you said, like the Supermind in some ways has really like found its moment. But what have you learned from people at companies about this concept that maybe you didn't even think of when you were like writing the book? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I can tell you one thing we've learned, maybe two things, from our research that's been surprising to me. Okay. Uh, One is 
we thought that it would be easy to combine people and computers in ways that led to huge improvements in performance. Uh, it turns out to be a lot harder than I thought hmm. to do that. We've been doing experiments and measuring that. And yes, you can find improvements, but often you find, in fact, we've looked at other people's studies and we often find that you combine people and computers and it does worse. Interesting. So um, I think for me, it's certainly too early to say it's a bad idea to combine people and computers. That's right. That must be wrong because there right, right, are right. examples where right. those combinations are amazingly powerful. And we've just been talking about some of them today. Lots of others we could talk about as well. Uh, but I think it, it means it's harder than it seems. And I think it means in part we need new theories or new guidelines for when and how to do this. Mm -hmm. So I don't have all the answers to what those are. We've got some ideas that we're playing with that I think are very promising. Um, but I think that's one thing I've learned. Another thing I've learned, and this is more from our research than from people on the ground, but it is that it's surprisingly hard to evaluate these things, especially uh -huh. when you're talking about not how many spreadsheets did you complete right, this, right, year, right, right. Uh, this week, but how good is this advertising copy or how good is this short story or how good is this image, this picture that's been generated. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, you, you know, that's not trivial, but it's turned out to be surprisingly hard to do good evaluations, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, in terms of uh, what have I learned from talking to people on the ground, yeah. I guess I've been surprised at the variety of comments I hear. Hmm. Some people I talk to say, oh, we thought about doing this and it's just not working, not going to work. And I hear other people say, wow, I use ChatGPT for everything now and it's incredibly helpful. That's and, so interesting. Uh, I think we, we still have to find our way in terms of where the real opportunities are. Right. I have a final question for you, which is a little tangential, but I think does fit into some of what we've been talking about. I wonder how much you think about distraction. Um, you know, the computer scientist Cal Newport at Georgetown has written a lot about this, kind of the notion that though there's a lot to be gained, obviously, by joining together humans and computers, there's also a lot uh, that can be taken away from your ability to concentrate and think deep thoughts and actually make progress on things. And I wonder, like, if you think about that kind of trade-off of, like, that we're more and more always plugged in, but does that subtract something from our abilities? Yeah, I think it's a very good question. Many of our technologies today, like mobile phones that have newspapers on them and they have yeah. little things that come up every time there's a headline that you might right. be interested in that shows you on the, the lock screen. And, you know, I find myself checking the newspapers several times a day at right, least. Right, right, right when I shouldn't be doing that, really. <laughs> I probably check my email more, much more often than I need to. Yeah. So I think it does affect our productivity. Uh, in some sense, of course, we could always just say, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. But it's hard to not do that. In this particular case about uh, distractions from mobile devices, uh, we are unfortunately fighting against the power of a market in which very um, wealthy companies have mm -hmm. lots of incentives to capture our attention, whether it's good for us or not. Right. 
I think that actually has another moral to the story, which is the reason this happens is because those wealthy companies are supported by advertising. So their real customers are not the users, they're right. the advertisers. Right. If we had a different business model, like if they were supported by subscriptions mm -hmm. rather than advertising, they'd be much more motivated to do what their actual users wanted them to do. Right. And um, so that's an example of how the kind of supermind in play can have a big effect on the outcomes that arise. Thomas Ballone is director of the MIT Center for Collective Intelligence. He's also Patrick J. McGovern Professor of Management at the MIT Sloan School of Management. Tom, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you. My pleasure. interested in learning more about the CSAIL Alliance's program and the latest research at CSAIL, please visit our website at cap.csail.mit.edu. And grab this podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kara Miller. Our show is produced by Matt Purdy and Nate Caldwell with help from Audrey Woods. Tune in next month for a brand new edition of the CSAIL Alliance's podcast and stay ahead of the curve.